Welcome to the Vision Church Podcast. We're so thankful that you're taking some time today to listen. We pray that this week's message challenges you to press in deeper with your pursuit of Christ. Our mission at Vision Church is to go and make disciples. You can help us in this mission by rating this podcast and sharing it with the world via social media. We want to reach the lost by raising up the found. Thank you again for tuning in today and enjoy the message. Today we're continuing our series called How to Share My Faith. We've got this week and next, and we'll conclude the series next Sunday. But today we're going to talk about how do I share my faith with someone who practices Judaism? So how do I share my faith with a Jewish person? And uh, I just want to let you know right now from the onset that I truly believe In this message today, it's going to do a few things. Number one, I pray that it inspires you to be a bold witness, to share your faith with your family members, your coworkers, the people in your sphere of influence. Number two, I pray that this word of God today, I pray that it inspires you and fortifies your faith. And I pray also that today you see the majesty and the sovereignty of the word of God as it unfolds right before our eyes. I'm going to be going really quickly today, so I would encourage you to take notes, you know, grab your note section on your phone, grab your neighbor's pen, whatever you got to do, just you'll feel better about it. I'll look, we'll all look better and it'll be great. All right, so take notes, tell your neighbor, take notes. We're going to move fast. All right, a few facts about Judaism. It is one of the oldest religions in the world, dating back to roughly 4,000 years ago. It is considered to be the original Abrahamic faith, and from it sprouted Christianity and Islam. Uh, They have a number of sacred texts, the most important of which is called the Torah, which are the original first five books of the Old Testament. And uh, they believe that God, there is one God who has revealed himself through prophets, that through seasons of time, God would choose a specific prophet. He would anoint that prophet and they would speak on behalf of God to the people using Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Zechariah, Isaiah, and so forth. Worldwide today, there are roughly 14 million practicing Jews today in the world And the majority of them are still waiting on the Messiah. They are waiting on a savior to come and fulfill the messianic prophecies of the Hebrew scripture. I do want to let you know that Jews are often the hardest people to evangelize because they've truly been indoctrinated and it's not just their faith, it's their tradition, it's their way of living and the lens through which they see the world. So these people are truly some of the hardest to share our faith with. I want to tell you just for a few moments, I want to share a few best practices with you in terms of sharing your faith. We're going to drop them on the screen. Number one, it's got to be motivated by love. Tell your neighbor you got to love them. And I've been saying this all throughout the series, but if your goal is just to be equipped to win an argument, we have lost before we've even started. There has to be a genuine love and empathy for the people that we are called to reach. The Apostle Paul said you could sell all of your possessions and give it to the poor. You could even die as a martyr. But if you didn't really love the people you were serving, it was all for nothing 
and it was all in vain. You can do the right things for the wrong reason, and it is imperative today that we truly check our hearts. And if you don't love the world like you ought to love the world, ask God, increase my love for them. Help me to love like you love, because truly that's the origin of true relational evangelism. Number two, best practice, is be patient. Tell your other neighbor, the one you've been ignoring, be patient. At Vision Church, we're going to talk to everybody today. All right? Be patient. I wish somebody would have told me this early on in my Christian journey because I had an unrealistic expectation. I thought the first time I shared my testimony or the first time I presented the gospel, people were going to be touched. They were going to start ugly crying and buckle to their knees right wherever we were in the gas station and get saved. And uh, that just didn't happen. And so early on, I thought, well, maybe I'm not doing a good job. Maybe I'm not really cut out to share my faith. Maybe this doesn't really work. But the truth is, the scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I have planted Apollos waters, but God brings the increase. In other words, He's speaking in agricultural terms that as we share our faith relationally, you cannot expect people to just get radically saved the first time you mention the name Jesus. It's going to be like planting seed or watering ground that has already been planted. Either way, it's going to take time, all right? And you need to understand that it takes time. It's a process rather than an event. And the agricultural society in this day, they didn't plant a seed and and then immediately go out to harvest it and start eating that. They knew it's going to take time to develop. And listen, as you share your faith, as you ask thought-provoking questions, as you invest in them relationally and share your testimony, over time, God is going to begin to do the work inside of their heart that only he can do. And you've got to trust God the process. It's not your eloquence. It's not your intelligence that's going to win somebody to Christ. No, unless the Holy Spirit draw them to repentance, it will not happen. It's got to be him. We have to own the relationship, but leave the results to him. It's not our job to make the gospel work. It is simply our job to proclaim the gospel. And Isaiah 55, 11 says, when my word goes forth, it cannot return void, but it will always accomplish what it was sent out to do. Anybody believe there's power in the word of God today? There's power in his word. Third best practice really quick is avoid triggering words. I know that sounds hypocritical coming from me. If you've ever heard my service, right? Tell your neighbor, don't trigger them. Okay. And I know that kind of like my style is like right down the middle, uh, black and white. And uh, that might work for preaching. But when you're in a relational conversation, you want to be careful because especially dealing with Judaism, there are some words that will cause them to put a wall up and to tune you out really before you even get a chance to get started. A few examples of those, number one, are don't use the word Old Testament. Don't say Old Testament. Well, you know, the Old Testament says, okay, homie, like I feel you and I appreciate that. But to them, that's a backhanded compliment. That's an insult. What you're really saying when you tell a Jewish person, let's read the Old Testament, is you're really telling them your faith is incomplete. Come and get up on my level. All right. So instead of using the words Old Testament, use the word Hebrew scriptures. 
say, hey, I want to share with you some Hebrew scriptures because their ears are going to be perked up. They're ready to hear that, right? They want to hear about their heritage and their tradition. And we're not misleading them. We're just being intentional about the language that we're using as to not put up walls and boundaries before we have the opportunity to plant the seed of God's word. Another triggering word is Christ. So instead of saying Christ, 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 say Messiah. So let me tell you about the Messiah. And that's a word that they're extremely used to hearing. They've been conditioned from an early age to ponder and consider and even look for the Messiah. So again, Christ, Messiah, it means the same thing. Just be intentional with the words that you use. And this next one might shock you a little bit. I would encourage you in the early stages of your relational evangelism to call Jesus by his Hebrew name, Yeshua, instead of using the word Jesus, the name Jesus. Now, look, some of you are getting tensed up. You're getting mad at me. And actually, I want to talk about this for a minute. Because believe it or not, in the last two months, I've had multiple people come up to me and they're like, hey, why do we call him Jesus and his Hebrew name is Yeshua? Are we idolaters? Have we like deviated? Is our faith corrupted by like the Catholic church or something? So just take a deep breath and calm down. Okay. We call him Jesus because we speak English and we read English transcribed manuscripts from the Greek. Okay. It's about our language. All right. The language may differ. The subject remains the same. In Hebrew, his name is Yeshua and the Greek manuscripts. They don't have those letters in the Greek manuscript. They call him Isus. And so Isus is the Greek transliteration of Hebrew and Jesus is the English transliteration of Isus. Okay, so no matter whether you speak Mandarin, Hebrew, Arabic, English, we're talking about the same one, the Lamb of God slain from the foundations of the world, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. It's not idolatry. We speak English. And for those of you that are still hung up on this point, let me remind you, Revelation says, when I saw the throne, I saw standing every tribe, every nation, and every tongue standing before the throne of God. All right, three people with the golf clap, but they're right, okay? His name is Jesus. But when witnessing to a Jewish person, it is wise to use the name Yeshua, all right? And then fourth best practice really quickly is you wanna present the gospel by connecting it to their Jewish roots. You wanna share the gospel by highlighting the Jewish origins. In other words, you do not want to start quoting Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and the epistles of the New Testament because they're like, hey, I don't believe that. Okay, so you've got to use the Hebrew scriptures. See what I did there? Hebrew scriptures. Some of you are still asleep. I said, don't use the Old Testament. Say Hebrew scriptures. Okay, use the Hebrew scriptures to point to the Messiah Jesus Christ. That's how you're going to be most effective and fruitful in sharing your faith. One more thing before we move on. You have to understand, too, a little bit of where they're coming from. Many of them, the reason they have walls up against Christianity and Christ is because they see accepting Yeshua, accepting Christ as a deviation from Judaism. They think that in order to accept Christ, that means I'm denouncing my heritage, my culture, because believe it or not, many Jews still today see Jesus 
Jesus as a Western European deity. They think that he was invented by the Roman Catholic Church. They think he's some Western religious construct, but many of them fail to realize he's from Bethlehem, from Galilee. He's as Jewish as they come. He is a Hebrew carpenter, and it's imperative that you help them to see that embracing Christ is embracing their Jewish heritage. He was a Jew, all right? So now, I'm going to be moving really quickly, and I'm going to give you nine messianic prophecies to equip you to share your faith. Now listen, don't tune out on me. Don't be like, well, I don't know anybody Jewish to share my faith, so this sermon's not for me. Hey, listen, this sermon is for you, because we're going to be talking about the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, and you're going to see the majesty of God's hand as we see the inspired text unfold, all right? And by the way, there are hundreds hundreds of messianic texts that we could use in the Old Testament to reveal Jesus. I'm just going to give you nine of the most potent, in my opinion, all right? Number one is found in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. We're going to have this on graphic form as well with the references behind me. The first messianic prophecy I want to highlight is that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are only a small village among the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. That's absolutely beautiful. Micah is a Hebrew text that reveals that from Bethlehem, the ruler of heaven and earth will be born and that his origins are from the time past. This scripture in Micah is literally saying that the Messiah, the Redeemer, he is from everlasting to everlasting. He is eternal. He existed with God outside of time, space, and matter. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is beautiful. The Messiah comes on behalf of the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but find life everlasting. The second uh, Messianic prophecy I want to highlight really quickly is Isaiah 7, 14, which describes the virgin birth. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, in its most pure definition, literally means God with us. People of the Jewish faith may say, well, we don't believe in the Trinity. We don't believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ. We don't believe in the divinity of this Messiah. Where does he claim to be divine? Hey, it's all the way back in Isaiah, written in 740 BC, that the son would be given by a virgin and his name will be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. God with us. The next messianic prophecy I want to show you is Isaiah 9.1, which says that his ministry will be in Galilee. I'm just going to touch this one really quickly for the sake of time. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future 
when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. Verse two, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Now, we have the advantage in 2023 of looking back at these prophetic texts and being able to decipher what they were foretelling. But right here is an inference to the 400 years of spiritual darkness that would fall on Israel and Galilee leading up to the coming of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize that for 400 years, from the close of the Old Testament to the beginning of the ministry of Christ, there were literally 400 years of silence, of darkness, where God did not speak to a prophet at all to the nation of Israel. So when he says, out of great darkness, a light will shine from Galilee. Church, this is the picture of redemption. Jesus, the light of the world, coming in to a dark place to give us hope. And just, just for fun, in Galilee is where his ministry really and truly began. That's where he invited Peter and Andrew and Philip and the disciples to come and follow him. After four centuries of darkness, a great light shined into the, into the darkness. The next one I want to show you is Psalm 118, verse 21, which tells us that the Messiah will be rejected by his own people. Their hardened hearts, the callous disposition of their rejection and unbelief validates even the messianic prophecies of old that tell us that's exactly what would happen, that he would come to his own and they would reject him and not receive him. Listen to Psalm 118, 21 for yourself. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Church, this is, this is beautiful. Who are the builders in Psalm 118? The Jewish scribes and rabbis and Pharisees and religious leaders. They were the one that were establishing and building and maintaining the foundation of Judaism and its faith. The stone, the Messiah appeared before them, but he didn't come in a way that they anticipated. And when they saw him, they did not recognize him and the creator stepped into creation, but the world rejected him and they threw him away. But that stone that was discarded has become the chief cornerstone. And now billions of people around planet earth hail him as king. And he has become the chief cornerstone. He's become the foundation, the rock on which we stand. Our life is founded on him. Our life is guided by him. That cornerstone is the guiding stone of all of the foundation. And so Christ is our example in all that we do and who we aspire to be. He's the chief cornerstone. Isaiah 11.10. And again, like I'm not just rattling off randomness for you. Like, I'm trying to equip you with the tools that you need to help share Christ, the Messiah, with, with Jewish people who reject him, all right? Because again, we're using, their, we're using their word, the Hebrew scriptures, to illuminate the person of Christ. 
Isaiah 11.10. It tells us that the Messiah will save the Gentiles. In that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. Church, this is incredible because at the time when this was written, the Jews believed they were the chosen people. They were the only ones gonna be saved. But all the way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, he tells us that no, it is God's plan not to save just the Jew, but also the Gentile. It tells us that the Messiah will hail from David's throne. Now, look, have you ever read the Bible and you come to the, the genealogies, the lineages, and you just turn the page? <laughs> like, don't try to convince me you studied the I know you're just flipping that page, okay? So do you realize that the Gospels begin with a genealogy? Matthew begins with so-and-so begets so-and-so, and so you can't pronounce their names, that part of the Bible that you skip over is intentional and it's magnificent because it's setting the premise from the very beginning of the Gospels that this Jesus, who we call the Christ, he hails from the lineage of David, fulfilling the prophets 700 years old, that he would hail from David and he would sit on his throne and establish a kingdom that would have no end. That genealogy you don't pay attention to, it validates that Jesus is who he said he was. It's magnificent. <laughs> Isaiah 52, 13. We're moving along here on the Messianic prophecies. This one is incredible, and I pray that you lean in. I really, truly do. Isaiah 52, 13. It tells us that the Messiah would suffer. See, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured that he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know that he was a man. For he will startle many nations and kings will stand speechless in his presence. For they will see what they have not been told and they will understand what they had not heard about. I want you to feel this for a minute because so many times we become numb to frequency when we consider the cross and when we think of Calvary and when we think of the sacrifice Jesus made for us, often we become numb by frequency or even sometimes we romanticize it all about his love and love and love. But I want you to pause and I want you to hear this text. It says that he was beaten beyond all recognition and that when those gazed upon him, they were astounded that he didn't even resemble a man any longer. You have to understand the suffering Jesus endured for you is unfathomable. His beard was ripped from his face. He was lacerated with a cat of nine tails, iron and lead, ripping the flesh from his body, beaten beyond human recognition. The Bible says that his face was so disfigured you could hardly recognize him as human. He was beaten and crushed within inches of his life. Yet he survived only to be crucified on a cross. 
The price that was paid for your salvation and your redemption, we will never truly know how much it costs. But I pray that this morning at Vision Church, we never take for granted the access that was made through Christ to bring us into the presence of God Almighty. I pray the gospel never loses its awe and wonder in our life. A high price was paid for your redemption and mine. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. And my favorite messianic text, and I'm about to take a lap in here. One of these days I'm going to do it. It's Isaiah 53. And I call it the gospel according to Isaiah. Remember, this was written seven centuries before Christ lived it. And I'm about to read a whole chapter to you. That's not an apology. I'm just letting you know. You cannot read too much of the Bible in church. I'm tired of preachers reading half a verse and then preaching for 50 minutes. Can you just give us the word? We didn't come to hear your opinion. All right. Isaiah 53, one, that wasn't in the notes. <clears throat> I want you to, church, I want you to hear this. This reads like it could have been written by John or Luke or Matthew. This is magnificent. Listen, Isaiah 53, 1. Who's believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root from dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with the deepest grief, we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, yet we did not care. Yet it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed all of us like sheep have strayed away and we have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid upon him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep is silent before its shears. It did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away and no one cared that he died without descendants for his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and he had deceived no one, but he was buried like a criminal and put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and to cause him grief. Yet when his life was made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants and he will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees what is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all of their sins. I will give him the honor of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels and he bore the sins of many and made intercession for them. Come on, somebody, and give the Lord praise. 
This is magnificent church. Magnificent. Scripture says in Isaiah 53 that he was pierced for our rebellion. That is a direct connotation to the crucifixion. It doesn't describe just any random death. He was pierced for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Nails driven through his hands and feet. A Roman spear thrust and pierced into his side. A crown of thorns piercing his skull. Scripture says that his life was cut midstream. History records he died at the age of 33 years old without any heirs or biological children. Yet scripture declares that through his death and sacrifice, his children will be as populous as the stars that illuminate the heavens. He will have more sons than the sand that lined the seashore. Because of the death of one, many will be made righteous because he bore the sins of the world. Scripture says that he was treated like a criminal and his body thrown in a rich man's tomb. History records the body of Jesus was given to Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. Yet it still is empty and holds no body. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior, the Lamb of God chosen and slain from the foundations of the world. Almost done. A couple more really quickly. Daniel 9.26 is a very important one, church. This is very important. Daniel 9.6 is a messianic prophecy that declares that the Messiah will be killed prior to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Listen to this. Daniel 9.26. For all those Jews still waiting on the Messiah. Read this. Daniel 9.26. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed appearing to have accomplished nothing. And a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. Just reflect on that for a minute. His life was cut midstream. He died and it appeared that he accomplished nothing. Do you realize that the Jews expected a Messiah that would overthrow Pilate and the Romans and establish a literal physical kingdom? Even the disciples thought he was gonna do that. Like Judas thought he was going to be secretary of the treasury of the new kingdom. And then when he realized this is a spiritual kingdom he's dying for, he's like, well, you've accomplished nothing. This was all for nothing. Church, this is how they perceived it, that he had done nothing. But watch, then it literally says, as the anointed one is killed, an army will rise and raise the city of Jerusalem and destroy the temple. Jesus was crucified roughly 33 AD, and four decades later, the Roman Empire swept into the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in 70 AD. The temple is still gone to this day. The Messiah has come. His name is Yeshua, Jesus Christ. He's the Savior of the world. And one more just for fun. Psalm 1610 prophesied of the resurrection. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. I mean, if you are thankful that his body did not rot in the grave, he's the resurrection and the life. That tomb is empty. Nobody else can claim it. Over the remaining few moments of today's sermon, I want to encourage you and invite you one more time to lean in because now I'm going to shift from messianic prophecy to Hebrew typology. This is super important. Tell your neighbor typology. Typology is symbolism. 
that throughout the scripture, it points forward to Messiah. I want you to hear me loud and clear. From Genesis to Malachi, the entire Old Testament is about one story, one person, over and over again. It's about Jesus. Jesus said of himself, you search the scriptures and you think in them you have everlasting life, but the scriptures speak of me. That's what got him crucified, by the way. He was telling the Jewish audience, you are meticulously following the Torah. You're trying to make yourself right by obeying the commandments and in keeping the commandments, you think you have life, but you're missing it. The whole point of the law is not to prove you righteous, but to prove you guilty. And it's all about needing a savior who would come and redeem you. He said, it's all about me. It always has been. And I'm going to show you over the remaining few moments of today's message how Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament, everywhere. I want to show you in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. I want you to see the gospel in the garden. Immediately after Adam and Eve's sin and humanity was fractured by their rebellion. Listen to this. Genesis 3, 21. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skin for Adam and his wife, period. That's an obscure text in Genesis 3, still in the garden. Many of us read it and we glance right on by, but you need to pause and look a little closer because prior to this, Adam and Eve sinned and fractured humanity. They sewed fig leaves together, their human attempt to cover their unrighteous acts, but that was to no avail. So God was rich in mercy and did for them what they could not do for themselves. And he himself offered the first sacrifice. God himself shed the first blood to clothe Adam, to cover his nakedness, to cover his shame, to robe him in righteousness. The gospel is in the first part of the garden. It's right there. Fast forward to the flood of Noah, Genesis 7, 15. Two by two, they came into the boat, representing every living thing that breathes. A male and female of each kind entered, just as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord closed the door. Tell your neighbor the door. The door to the ark is everything. It's so important. I want you to understand in this massive ark, two by two came of every kind, but there was one way in, only one way to escape the wrath and the peril and the impending judgment. There was only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Jesus went a step further and he said, I am the door. He was referencing Genesis 7 in the ark. Today, I want you to hear me loud and clear. There's one way to be saved. There's one way to escape the wrath and the peril that is coming to this world. It's through Jesus Christ alone. And just like the door of the ark remained open, right until the last minute. So right now, if there's life in your body, breath in your lungs, the gates of heaven stand open. The door is available. There is a way ready for you to come to the Father. It's only through Jesus. But hear me, when you draw your last breath, If you have not trusted in Christ, repented of your sin, that door will shut and there is no second chance. There is no going back. Today is the day of salvation. He is the door and right now, heaven, its gates stand open. Come to Jesus. Fast forward to the Exodus, chapter 12, verse 13. During the Exodus out of Egypt, listen to what happened. In Exodus 12, 13, the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood 
I will pass over you and the plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. We think of Moses and the Jews, they idolized Moses, but you have to understand he was a typology. He was a foreshadow of the ultimate deliverer. Moses was fully Hebrew and fully royal growing up in the house of Pharaoh. So Jesus, fully God and fully man, he came to mediate. Moses delivered his people from slavery. Jesus delivered us from an enemy far greater, far worse. He delivered us from sin, from hell, and from judgment. Watch how Moses delivered the people through the blood of the Lamb. He said, put the blood over the doorpost. And when the plague falls on the land, every house that is covered by the blood will be saved. Moses delivered through the blood of the lamb. Jesus delivers through his own shed blood. We're saved by the blood of Jesus. The gospel is everywhere. One last example found in Numbers 21. The bronze serpent in the wilderness. Listen to this. The Lord told him, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. And all who are bidden will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. And then anyone who is bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. We read that passage and it seems so obscure, but you have to understand it's the gospel in plain sight. Jesus is the bronze serpent. You say, oh no, I don't like to think of Jesus as a serpent. You need to think of Jesus as a serpent because it's the picture of your sin and mine on Calvary's cross. Scripture says, he who knew no sin became our sin on the cross that you might be called the righteousness of God through him. He became your affair. He became your addiction. He became your sin. He took on the iniquity of the world. Bronze is an impure metal. He took on your impurity. And he was lifted high, just like that bronze serpent lifted high on a pole. So 2,000 years ago, the Son of God became our sin, lifted high on a cross on Calvary. And all who will look to him, all who will trust in him, they will be healed, they will be saved, they'll be forgiven. There's one way to heaven. There's one way to reunion with the Father. It's through Jesus alone, the whole Bible is about one message through and through for God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but find life everlasting God loves you he wants to save you you being a good enough person will never be good enough you must repent and humble yourself and look to the cross today. If you're in this room or you're watching online and you're not right with the Lord, I want you to pray with me right now. This is a holy moment. There is a God in heaven who draws near to us as we call on his name. I want you to pray with me in all sincerity from your heart. Father, we come to you in Jesus name. We repent of our sin. We acknowledge the error of our ways. We, our life has been marked by lust, pride, greed, and selfish ambition and materialism. 
We have loved the things created more than the creator himself. And today we ask you for mercy. This morning, we look to the bronze serpent. We look to the cross. We believe that 2,000 years ago, Jesus bore our sin. The wrath of God was satisfied in him. And then on the third day, he rose from the grave. Today, we give you our past, present, and future. Be my savior and my Lord. I submit my life to your Lordship and I acknowledge that your way is better. I want to follow you all the days of my life. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Hey, if you enjoyed today's podcast, click that subscribe button, share this podcast on social, or even take a screenshot from your story and tag us. We'd love to hear how the Lord is using this podcast to bless your life. You can send an email to info at visionchurch.com or you can DM us on social with a story of how God is moving in your world. Also, we'd like to thank those who invest in our ministry financially. It's because of your sacrifice that we are able to publish this every week. If you'd like to join in giving to our ministry, you can click the link in the description or visit visionchurch.com and click the Give tab. Thanks again for listening. God bless.